So Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. Behold, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. If you've journeyed with us at all, you understand the language of prophecy can be simultaneously opaque and obvious. Okay, It can be murky and meticulous, but it just depends on your perspective. It depends on if you're looking at prophecy to the future, or if you're looking back at prophecy fulfilled. See, prophecy fulfilled is easy to figure out, you know, unless you're really slow. But typically, we can, you know, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and we told him that, that we, he told us he was going to be born in Bethlehem, that, that one's not too hard to understand, right? Some of the other things, though, we read and we have to think through and process. Looking forward, even the prophets themselves were sometimes unclear as to the person or the times of Messiah. Peter tells us that, 1 Peter 1.10. They carefully searched to figure it out, and they didn't know. They were talking about this Christ, about this Mashiach in the Hebrew. They were looking forward to Him, but they didn't know the time or who it would be. And so it was kind of opaque to them at times, even the prophecies coming out of their mouths. But looking back, the prophecies of old are remarkably precise and remarkably clear. And it's with that understanding, as we study Bible prophecy, the more we learn how it was fulfilled, the more we can see how it will be fulfilled. The more we look to the old prophecies fulfilled, the more we can see the prophecies coming will be fulfilled exactly the way God has described them. And so even prophecies yet future become less opaque and more clear for us. Because we've got the entire example of thousands of years of history to look at. It is likely that the prophecy we come to tonight was murky to Malachi. That even as he wrote it, he wasn't certain about what exactly it meant or how it was going to come to pass. But looking back, we can see the specifics of both the first and second coming of Messiah in this prophecy. Indeed, in these first six verses... He will talk about the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ all rolled into one because, you see, the Hebrew prophets were not privy to the 2,000 years of the church age. I've told you before, it's like looking across at mountain peaks. If you look from a certain perspective at, at one mountain and there's another mountain, perhaps even taller, behind it and you can see both. What you can't see is the distance and the valley in between. Well, that's the church age. And the two peaks being the two comings of Messiah. And sometimes, depending on where you're standing, if you're looking at those two mountains, they can look like one large mountain. And you can't really tell. So the Hebrew prophets would write, the Messiah is going to come. Here's how he's going to come. But some of those prophecies didn't line up. Prophecies that he's going to come and suffer and die. Prophecies that he's going to come and rule and reign. How does that work together? Well, they couldn't see the distant mountain. They could only see the one. And so they would prophesy this way. Malachi comes out of the gate here in chapter 3 and starts talking about both comings. Jesus' first coming, Jesus' second coming. Much in the same way that Isaiah did. In Isaiah 61, verse 1, a passage familiar to some of you, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now you know, when Jesus read from that scroll, the scroll of Isaiah, in the synagogue in Nazareth, stories in Luke chapter 4, 
He stopped right there, rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. And Jesus said in Luke 4.21, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Problem is, he stopped halfway through the verse. Because the very next line of the very same verse, after he says, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, it says, and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus had to stop because it was not the day of vengeance of our God. It was the year of the Lord's favor. We're still in that year. We are at the end of that year. But the day of the vengeance of our God is a day yet coming. So Malachi does the same thing. Isaiah speaks of both days, one verse, same, same verse, two different days, two different times, two different comings. So Malachi does this. And by the way, you might note this, there are two forerunning messengers. Two forerunners. Actually, in verse 1, and this will freak you out a bit, there are three messengers. But there are two that are forerunners of the third. One is very obvious to us. The other one may seem a little less obvious, and yet it shouldn't, and we're going to talk about that quite a bit more next week. But for right now, starting again in verse 1, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. My messenger, my Malachi. Remember, Malachi's name means messenger. This entire book is the message of the messenger who will come before the true messenger, who is the Lord Jesus. And here, this messenger is going to come and clear the way, note he says, before me. My messenger is going to come and clear the way. So Malachi the messenger now brings the message of two immediate messengers to come, and the first is John the Baptist. No question. John the Baptist, the messenger who comes to clear the way, or literally to prepare the way, that word in the, in the Hebrew, clear, is also prepare. The one who comes to prepare the way of the Lord. John the Baptist. The man about whom Jesus said, Matthew 11, 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, Jesus says, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That is a mind-boggling, remarkable statement. Because what that means, my friends, is if you feel little, if you feel less, if you feel like in the vast scheme of the kingdom, you're just one of the little people, guess what? You're greater than John the Baptist as far as Jesus is concerned. So great is his love for you that you enter into his kingdom and you immediately rise to a rank higher than the greatest man ever born at the time of Jesus, John the Baptist. Isaiah 40, verse 3, prophesied also about John the Baptist, saying, A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. And we know that's about John the Baptist, because all four gospel writers quoted that prophecy about John. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Mark chapter 1, verse 3. Luke chapter 3, verse 4. You can find it easily. It's at the beginning of each one of the four gospels. And John chapter 1, verse 23, they all quote, A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. And they were talking about John the Baptist. Isaiah was. Malachi is when he says, I'm going to send my messenger to prepare the way. More on J the B next week. We'll come back to John. But the next 
and far greater messenger arrived directly on the heels of John's forerunning ministry. You see, the next and most important messenger in the message of Malachi is Jesus. Jesus, the Word made flesh. Note this in verse 1 going on. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into His temple. And He did. In fact, it only took about eight days. See, Jesus was born of Mary in Bethlehem. And eight days after that heavenly yet humble night of the angels singing in the heavens and the shepherds making their way out of the shepherd's fields and into that stable or cave or whatever it was where Jesus was born. Eight days after that, they made the six mile trek up to Jerusalem and Jesus was presented for the first time in the temple as an eight year old or eight day old baby boy. He suddenly came into the temple. Luke 2.21, when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Every year following, Jesus came into the temple. All the way from, from birth, eight days after his birth, all the way up until he was 12 years old, every year, multiple times, at least three times a year, because that was the law required of all the men in Israel. At least three times a year, the boy Jesus would go up to the temple, up to the temple, up to the temple. Suddenly, he came into the temple, Malachi says. And then Luke jumps to when Jesus was 12 years old. Remember the frantic folks trying to find him. Didn't know where he was. They thought that he was in the caravan heading home, but he wasn't. They go rushing back to Jerusalem. Luke 2.46 says, After three days, <laughs> they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And by the way, I don't think he was asking them questions to get answers himself. I think he was asking them questions to instruct them, though he was 12. Just my opinion. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and at his answers. Well, after that, in the life and finally the ministry of Jesus, he would again go up to Jerusalem over and over, entering in the temple again and again and again. But listen, while this prophecy of the Lord suddenly coming into his temple has shades of all the many temple visits of Jesus in His first coming, the abrupt arrival spoken of here is of His second coming. Which is why when the Word says, I'm going to send my messenger and He will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into His temple, He must be talking about another messenger. I mean, there's John the Baptist... Absolutely. And He cleared the way before Jesus and He came, a voice crying in the wilderness. And Jesus came into the temple as prophesied and yet that abrupt sudden coming into the temple. Glorious as Jesus will. The Bible indicates He will be preceded by another messenger who will come to later on. At the beginning of chapter 3, what's happening here is God is answering the contentious previous conversation. And that's important to understand the context. So look back at verse 17 of chapter 2. We looked at this on Sunday morning, kind of briefly at the very tail end of the study. 
He says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. It's the I'm a good person principle. I'm good. All you got to be is good, right? Just be good. I just got to be good enough. I just got to make sure that I'm good enough. And the problem is, you're never good enough. I'm never perfect enough. And our culture has gone so far as to call evil good and good evil. God said, that wears me out. And He said, it also wearies me when you keep saying, where is the God of justice? Have you heard that question? Maybe not phrase that way. Maybe phrase more like this. How could a loving God allow this? If there was really a God, then why this? Where is the God of justice? And so, chapter 3 is the Lord responding to these wearisome questions. Behold, I am going to send my messenger. And he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Note the interchangeability within this first verse. He says, I will send my messenger to clear the way for who? Me. Okay, this is the Lord speaking. This is God speaking. This is Yahweh talking. And he says, I'm going to send this messenger to clear the way for me to come. And then immediately it says, and the Lord will come. The Lord whom you seek. The word there is not Yahweh. As you might expect, it's Adonai. Which is often a word used of Jesus when God is referred to as Yahweh. As when David said, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord, Yahweh, God. The Lord, Adonai, Jesus. And so here we see, he's going to clear the way for me, Yahweh speaking, and the Lord, Adonai, whom you seek, will suddenly come into his temple. And thirdly, he's called, oh wait, before I get there, whose temple is it? His temple. The temple belongs to the one who suddenly comes. Well, wait a minute. It's the temple of the Lord. Exactly. So, I'm going to have my way prepared. The Lord will come suddenly into His temple. And finally, He comes to the next messenger here. The messenger of the covenant. Let's camp out there for a minute. The messenger of the covenant. This is no longer a forerunner. This is not the messenger who would clear the way. This is now the messenger who comes after the messenger clears the way. This is a new messenger. And this messenger of the covenant is the same one who owns the temple. He's the same one who is called Adonai. He's the same one who has the way cleared before me, before him. The messenger of the covenant is the Lord. The messenger of the covenant is Jesus. In the Hebrew, it's the Malach Habarit. Malach Habarit. It means, sometimes it's translated, the angel of the covenant. The angel of the covenant. This is the one and only time that this name is ever used in the Bible. The angel of the covenant. The messenger of the covenant. It's the only time you'll see it. But the Malach Habarit recalls another angelic sounding name. The Malach Yahweh. The angel of the Lord who we talked about quite a bit when we were studying Zechariah. 
The Malach Habarit, the angel, the messenger of the covenant, that's Jesus. The Malach Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, is Jesus. Still talking about the same guy. That phrase, the angel of the Lord, is used 57 times in the Old Testament and always referring to Jesus. Referring to the Messiah. He is also called not only the angel of the covenant, the angel of the Lord, he is called the angel of the presence. Now, don't get confused by angel. It's a little easier when we get to the Greek because there are different words for messenger and angel. Angel is angelos in the Greek. But in the Hebrew, angel or messenger are both malach. And so both can apply to an angelic presence. And angels are sometimes in the Hebrew scripture called the malachim. But every time you see the angel of the Lord, you see him as the exact physical representation of God the Father. You see this Malach Yahweh speaking with the authority of God the Father, receiving worship like God the Father. No other angel does that. One tried and was cast out of heaven. The Malach Habarit, messenger of the covenant, angel of the covenant. The Malach Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. And there's a third name that also uh, coincides with the previous two. The Malach Chupanim. The Malach Chupanim, which means the angel of the presence. Listen to this. Exodus 33, verse 14. The Lord said, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. That is the greatest attitude to have. God, if your presence doesn't go, I don't want to go. And I don't want to be found anywhere that your presence isn't there. And if you find yourself heading toward or standing in a place where you know God's presence would not be, get out. Isaiah 63, verse 9, says, In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence, the Malach Chupanim, saved them. In his love and in his mercy he redeemed them. He lifted them and carried them all the days of old. This messenger... This Malach, this human manifestation, this self-revelation of God as we've studied is the pre-incarnate Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus. Now I say that with absolute confidence. I wouldn't have ten years ago. In fact, I think if you go back and listen to some of our earlier studies, what you might hear me say is something like, now it says the angel of the Lord here. I think that might be Jesus. After 57 times of seeing the Malach Yahweh in Scripture and seeing the context and seeing the content and seeing what He does and who He is and how He is responded to and what He says, (laughs) it's Jesus. We are talking about Yeshua, Jesus the Christ. John 1.18 says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father has explained Him. That's what the Malach Yahweh did throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. That's what Jesus did, becoming a baby and and living and walking in human flesh among us. He explains God to us. So that you can say, I don't have to guess or wonder about the nature of God. I just look at Jesus and I know who God is. I know how He feels about things. I know what breaks His heart. I know what brings Him joy. All I have to do is look at Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 tells us He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. Who? 
Jesus. Why is he called here the messenger, the malak, or the angel, if you will, of the covenant? Now remember, covenant-wise, God is dealing with Israel here. We're still 400 years away from the first advent of Jesus. So he's talking to Israel. And in this final message to Israel before the last of the Hebrew prophets, John the Baptist, comes on the scene, in this final message... He speaks to Israel again about the covenant. Which one? Well, it really doesn't matter because he made a bunch of them with Israel. You can say he is talking about the Mosaic covenant and I would say you're correct. You can say he's talking about the Abrahamic covenant and I would say you're right on. You can say he's talking about the land covenant. I would say yes. Or the Davidic covenant. I'd say sure. (laughs) As a matter of fact, he has made seven covenants with Israel, all of which were unconditional except one, the Mosaic, the law of Moses. That's the only one where God said, if you do this, you can stay in the land and I will bless you. If you don't do this, I'm kicking you out of the land. But the other six were absolute guarantees on the part of God, not on the part of Israel. Unconditional. Why is He the messenger of the covenant? Well, first of all, understand this. Jesus is the benefactor of the old covenant. The benefactor. Not the beneficiary. Understand those words. Remember, the the beneficiary, He's the one who receives the blessing of a covenant. But the benefactor is the one by whom and through whom the covenant comes. Keep your finger there. Go back to Genesis 22. Genesis 22. In Genesis 22, we see that epic moment where Abraham builds an altar to sacrifice his only son whom he loves. What's interesting to me in this this story of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, and you Bible students know this, it's the first time the word love is used in the Scriptures. Take your son, your only son whom you love, and sacrifice him on an altar on the mountain of which I will show you. Mount Moriah. Same place where the temple mount is today. Same place where the temple was constructed. I believe the sacrifice of Isaac happened in the exact location of the Holy of Holies later on. Can't prove it, but it all lines up. So in this passage, Genesis 22, Abraham goes up. All he has is the word of the Lord. Go sacrifice your son. Abraham, we're told in the book of Hebrews, believed in resurrection or he wouldn't have done it. Figured somehow, even though he should have to slay his son, that God was going to miraculously raise him back to life. Because he knew God well enough to know he wouldn't ask for a human sacrifice. And yet, Abraham was willing to do it. If you look in verse 11, we're told as, verse 10, start there, Abraham stretched out his son, his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord, the Malach Yahweh, called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him now. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Who's the Malach Yahweh? Well, it's God. The angel of the Lord, speaking with all the authority of God, 
says, You have not withheld your son from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. That would be the first sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Be followed by many others once the temple was constructed. But note this, verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you. And I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed, obeyed my voice, says the Malachwa, Yahweh, says the angel of the Lord, says the Lord God. Because that's who the angel of the Lord is. You see where I'm going with all this. He is the benefactor. Jesus is. Which is why He's called the messenger of the covenant. Because here we have, in Genesis 22, a restatement of the covenant God made with Abraham. Both the Abrahamic covenant and the land covenant. All that God had promised through Abraham. He restates right here on Mount Moriah through the voice of the Malach Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. Jesus is the benefactor. By the way, Jesus said in John 8.56, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Well, what does that mean? I'll tell you what, Jesus' listeners knew exactly what that meant. Because they turn around and they said to him, You're not yet 50 years old and yet you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am the Malach Yahweh, the messenger of the Lord, the angel of the presence, the messenger of the covenant. Again, we see in Exodus chapter 3, going forward from there, the angel of the Lord is the one in the burning bush speaking to Moses, the Malach Yahweh, declaring His divinity to his servant Moses. Fast forward from there, Exodus 23, verse 20. The Lord says, Behold, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Be on your guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgression, since my name is in him. My presence, the angel of the presence, the angel of the Lord, The angel of the covenant, he's the benefactor of the old covenant. Second reason why the messenger of the covenant, this name is applied, this singular time is applied to the coming of Jesus, is that he is also the fulfiller of the old covenant. The benefactor and the one who fulfills it. Jesus said in Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus fulfilled the law to the letter. Even as the perfect lawful sacrifice in His death. And so, because of His death, 
Jesus, not only the benefactor of the Old Covenant, the fulfiller of the Old Covenant, becomes the mediator of the New Covenant. He's the messenger of the Covenant. Whether in His first or His second coming, both it works. He came to proclaim the New Covenant, to mediate for us the New Covenant. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. For this reason, He's the mediator of a new covenant. So that, since a death has taken place, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. He says, for where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. Remember, we quoted that Sunday morning. Because God doesn't see marriage as a contract. He sees marriage as a covenant. Which is why we say, till death do us part. In the new covenant, we could say it this way. Through death we are joined. Through the death of Christ, we are brought near to God. We don't part from Him in this death. But in the new covenant, we come near. Because Hebrews 12.24 tells us, we've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Why better? Because the blood of Christ cries out mercy, while the blood of Abel cries out justice. The blood of Christ offers grace. The blood of Abel looked for revenge. And in Christ's blood, the message of the covenant becomes real. The new covenant. Now, you got all that? In all of this... Over the years, over the decades, over the centuries, there are some things I believe the church has gotten wrong. And I'm talking about the church in general. And I'm not coming along to say I'm the one who's got it right. There are others who have come along before me who have pointed to the Scriptures and said, you know, but it says this. Where the church has gotten one thing wrong is related to the New Covenant. And I was raised with this theology. That we as recipients of the new covenant, God has done away with the old covenant, therefore He is through with the Jew, He's done away with Israel, and the church receives now the new covenant. It's for the church. The new covenant game was originally for Israel, not the church. Now I'm not saying it, I'm not doing reverse replacement theology here. Replacement theology, you know, is that theology that says the church replaces Israel in God's plan. Israel's done. The church now takes over. That is wrong theology. And that is something that came down in the Reformation and has kind of been passed on for years after years. And it's not biblical. God never kicked out Israel. God never shut down or cut off the Jews completely. He has always had a parallel plan running for Israel at the same time as His plan for the church. But this new covenant idea, and this is so important we get this. People who say the church is the recipient of the new covenant, I, I say not originally. Not originally. That first covenant was given to Israel. Keep your finger there in Malachi again, or if you're not back to Malachi, just go to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah is real close to the center of your Bibles. So if you turn there and look around, you'll find it. Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah prophesied in the waning days of Israel before Babylon crushed the kingdom of Judah, before Babylon wiped out 
that first temple of Solomon. Jeremiah saw it go down. You, you know that. The prophet Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. And Jeremiah is the one now speaking to the people of Israel. So now we're a good 600 years before Jesus came in the flesh. Before the church. And Jeremiah speaks the words of the Lord. Behold, days are coming. This is Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. My friends, that's the new covenant. Now as God brings the new covenant, the message of the new covenant through Jeremiah to his people, let me ask you, are there any Jewish stipulations on that covenant? Any requirements of the Jewish people from God for them to be a part of that covenant? Let me make the question easier. Is it conditional or unconditional? Unconditional. Because the Lord's the only one speaking here. And he says, this is what I'm going to do, Israel. I'm going to give you a new covenant. Not like the old one that you broke, that you obviously couldn't keep. And by the way, that nobody could have kept. Not like that one. The new covenant. I'm going to make it for you, with you. The new covenant. Jesus, the messenger of the covenant, is the benefactor and the fulfiller of the Old Covenant, and He is the mediator of the New Covenant, which came to Israel first. As Paul said in Romans 16, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. Charles Feinberg said, Mark well, the Gospel began with Israel in the first coming, and it did. Study the book of Matthew. All the way through Matthew chapter 10. It was always go to Israel, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus' focus was Israel first. And it wasn't until Israel began to reject him that then he began to spread out to the Gentiles. It was always Israel first. Mark well the gospel began with Israel in the first coming, and so it will be again in the second advent. Israel is the central purpose of God in both comings of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth. You see, in His second coming, the reason why Israel is the focus is because the church comes with Him. So Jesus' return to the earth is not for the church, it's with the church. But it is for Israel, just as His first coming was first for Israel, and then for the Gentiles to be included. So don't don't think that we're not recipients of the new covenant. Absolutely we are. We just need to have a right perspective here. And Paul gives it to us in Romans eleven seventeen. He says, If some of the branches, speaking of Israel, were broken off, and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Church, don't be arrogant toward Israel. Somewhere along the lines, the church missed that one. 
But if you are arrogant, remember, it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Who's the root? And I see, I would have thought, what, what? The Jewish people, Israel, or? It's Jesus. The root is Jesus. The branches are Israel. Right? So the And I've often thought, the root that supports this is Israel. I may even have taught that. If you find it, tell me. I'll go back and delete it. <laughs> the branches are Israel. The root is Jesus. He's the root who springs up out of dry ground, right? He's both the root and the offspring of Jesse. He's always referred to as the root. The root is Jesus. The branches are Israel. The branches grew up first out of the root, but were broken off, some of them. We, as wild olives, and I want a t-shirt that just says wild olive. <laughs> Would that be awesome? People be like... What's that? It's like a new restaurant or something? Oh no. Let me tell you what it really means. But we're wild olives. We're grafted in. We're brought into this new covenant that God gave first to Israel, but by His grace includes us. Isn't that marvelous? We get to be part of this whole thing. So Jesus, the messenger, the angel of the covenant, is also the supporting root who chose the original branches and grafted in all those who believe on His name. Verse 2. But who can endure the day of His coming and who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. Turn over from there one book to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist is talking about the coming of Jesus. But as John speaks, understand this, he is not talking about the immediate coming of Jesus. He is talking about the second coming of Jesus. How do you know? Listen to this, verse 11. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, that's first coming, and with fire, that's second coming. You've probably seen, no doubt, a logo of fire used for Jesus or used for Pentecostal movements. And and it's a nice logo, but I'm not sure it's the best theology. I understand that tongues of fire appeared above the apostles when they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. But the reality is here, if you look at the context of what John the Baptist is saying, the fire is not a positive. The Holy Spirit is. He's the one who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He also baptizes with fire. Now look at the next verse. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather together his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The fire of Jesus. What is the fire symbolic of? Two things. In the pointed revelations of Malachi chapters 3 and 4, the messenger Messiah brings two kinds of fire. Jesus, in His second coming, brings two kinds of fire. He brings fires of purification and He brings fires of conflagration. I love that word. A conflagration is a massive blaze. Think of a huge brush fire completely out of control. That's a conflagration. And Jesus comes both to purify Israel, taking them through the fires of purification, but also to burn up the evil-minded, the rebellious, the Christ-rejecting in fires of conflagration. 
Skip down to chapter 4, verse 1 of Malachi. Back in Malachi now. Chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace. And all the arrogant and every evildoer will be like chaff. And the day is coming, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will not leave them neither, it will leave them neither root nor branch. And that, my friends, is an apt description of what the Bible calls the lake of fire. Let's make no mistake about it. Let's be absolutely clear. The Bible, not Pastor Rick, not some theologian somewhere, the Bible, God's Word, defines and describes hell as a real place. It's not just an idea. It's not just the absence of God. Hell is an absolutely true place. Jesus spoke of it as an absolutely real consequence to rejecting Him. Mark 9, verse 43. Jesus said, if your hand... In verse 45, He says, if your foot... In verse 47, if your eye causes you to stumble, in any case, cut it off. Cut off your hand. Cut off your foot. Or throw out your eye. He says, it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one hand or one foot or one eye than having two hands and two feet and both eyes and to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Jesus' description. So if we're to take that literally, we would all be blind, handless, and footless. But saved, (laughs) perhaps. Here's the thing. I think if we cut off our hands, our feet, and threw out our eyes, we still would find ways to sin. But Jesus is making a very clear point. You know what? If there's a chance that you might go to hell, do whatever it takes to avoid it. Don't do what sends you there. Cut it off. Pluck it out. Don't do it. And as we process this and we think about this, we start to realize, but no matter what I do, as I said, if we cut off hands, feet, and eyes, we still would find ways of sinning. But Jesus is saying, this is how desperate a situation you are in. And it's why you so need my grace. Because that's why Jesus says, I died for you. He didn't cut off his hands. He had nails go through his hands. He didn't cut off his feet. The nails pierced his feet. He didn't pluck out his eyes. His blood poured into his eyes from the crown of thorns driven down onto his head. Jesus was cut off completely so that we might not go to hell. And it's true and it's biblical. Matthew 10.28 Jesus said, Don't fear those who kill the body. but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You want to be afraid of something? There you go. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10 takes it even further. says the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. It's not a, it's not a metaphor. Where the beast and the false prophet also are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I've told you before, Satan is not the boss of hell. Satan is in hell, will be in hell eventually. He's not right now. 
that he's going to be thrown into hell like any and everybody who reject Jesus as Lord and Savior. And he will not be lording it over people in hell. And one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard in my entire life is that comment, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Dumb! Because nobody reigns in hell. Including Satan. It says in Revelation 20 verse 14, death and Hades also were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire, because it's the permanent, spiritual, eternal death. And verse 15 says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, remember that, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, before anyone thinks Rick's going all hellfire and brimstone preaching here, please understand, all I just did was read you three passages. I just told you what the Bible said. And this is God's word on the subject. Hell is for real. Put that one on the New York Times bestseller. Hell is for real. I'm sure that would fly off the shelves. But hell is for real. Where's the God of justice? How could a loving God create hell? People say. Well, I can tell you He didn't create it for you. In fact, He really didn't create it for any human being. Matthew 25.41 says, He will say to those on His left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. That's why there's a hell. Because of the devil and his angels. But for those who reject the grace of Jesus Christ, that's the only alternative. The hell created for the devil and his angels. God warns of it over and over and over. You Bible students know He talks about hell. Jesus talks about hell more than heaven. And He does it because His love is so great. He would rather warn now and save then than dance around it now and see people condemned. That's the heart of the Father. But the arrogant and the evildoer will end up, as Malachi 4.1 tells us, set ablaze in the conflagration of His coming. As for Israel, the conflagration is not for them. The fires of purification are for them. Remember back in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 9, we just covered this. God says, I will bring the third part through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on My name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. And here in verse 3, he says he was like a refiner's fire, and like a fuller's soap. It says, he will sit as a smelter and a purifier, verse 3, of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. This is metallurgy, they call it, and it is the, the melting down of metals, gold and silver, to the point of purification. And that's what Jesus will do in His second coming for Israel. Israel will go through the tribulation, which is their final purification. And a third part will come through in faith and be saved. And that's the reason why the refiner's fire and the fuller's soap are used here in tandem. Because for Israel, the fire is about cleansing and purification for the sake of righteousness, but for a reason. Continuing on in verse 3, 
says, I'm going to refine them like a smelter and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi. Okay, what was the job of the Levites? The priesthood, right. And refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Verse 4. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. Levi must be purified before they can again offer sacrifices to the Lord. Now, if you studied Ezekiel with us, this will not be new to you. But Ezekiel chapter 40 through 46, this is covered at length. And Malachi speaks to it here as well. That there will be, get this, there will be a reinstatement of the sacrificial system of Israel in the millennial kingdom. There's going to be a millennial temple that Ezekiel describes. And within that temple, sacrifices will be offered to the Lord God as they were in days of old. And the Levites must be purified so that they can offer the sacrifice. But why? Why would they do that? It's just weird. The sacrifices before always looked forward to Jesus. Well, Jesus has come. Jesus already died. He's already the perfect sacrifice. Why the sacrificial system again? To look back to what Jesus did. In the church today, we share the Lord's table. We take communion, the bread and and the juice. But for the Jewish people in the millennial kingdom, and now you may think it's bizarre that God would do this. Hey, I'm not God. His ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. Thank God for that. But he's the one who comes along and says, no, I'm going to have that sacrificial system again. Why? So that those who are living in, growing up in, born and raised in the millennial kingdom will have a graphic example to draw their attention back to the cross of Calvary that brings them the same salvation as you and me. The sacrificial system restored once again. It all comes full circle. But the idea behind the fires of purification, note this, is to ensure that the offerings are pleasing to God. They've got to be clean, they've got to be pure. The Levitical priests going in to offer so that the offerings are pleasing to the Lord. And that's why we go through the fire. That's why we have to have times of persecution and hard times and difficulties. And I'm not talking about stuff that is a result of our sin. We all have things in our lives that make our lives hard because we made stupid choices. Let's just call it what it is. I sinned and therefore I've got the fallout and I've got to deal with that. But there's persecution that comes. And there are hard times that have nothing to do with anything you did. Where you can look at it and go, look, I really didn't sin here and yet I am feeling the weight. I'm feeling the pain of this. I'm feeling the heartache. I think about dear sisters and dear brothers in this fellowship who have lost spouses and I think, they didn't do anything to deserve that. I think about dear brothers and dear sisters in this fellowship who have gone through, who have suffered through months, years of cancer, Jim, and treatments throughout and suffering through that, being purified by the Lord so that we might be pleasing to God. He takes us through hard times. It makes us stronger in our faith. Jim, let me boast on you for a moment. I know you don't want me to. I'm going to anyway. You can't stop me. I got the microphone. (laughs) But 
I watched my brother from the moment he found out he had cancer to the moment the doctor said, you no longer have cancer. And I watched this, this, this long period of time. Trips down to Seattle and, and, and the radiation treatments and all he had to go through. And all I ever heard from Jim was praise the Lord. What he saw, what he experienced, what he got to, to, to do in that season. It was purifying. Was it not, Jim? It was purifying. And so Jesus says in Mark 9.49, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. If the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty? Jesus says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Salted with fire, have salt in yourselves? What are you saying, Lord, that I need to go into the fire? Hot and salty? (laughs) That would be another cool (laughs) t-shirt. Perhaps more difficult to explain than the previous one. Wild olive, hot and salty. (laughs) The fire is a persecution though. It keeps us flavorful in the Lord like salt. It preserves us as salt preserves. It's also interesting that every grain offering sacrificed in Israel had to be sacrificed with salt. You see, salt is the, doesn't burn up. You, you salt things in the fire, salt doesn't burn up. It goes into the food. Salt is steak. The salt doesn't go away, does it? The flavor's there. And that's what happens even when we go through fires of persecution and struggle and hardship. The Lord says you're being purified. Leviticus chapter 2 verse 13. Every grain offering of yours moreover you shall season with salt so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. And so again, persecution, hard times, difficulties, they are as salt in our offerings to God. He's not saying welcome persecution, but He is saying welcome persecution purification it is a good thing to pray Lord sanctify me Lord purify me just know that as you pray that it may involve some tough times but God will be with you his presence will go before you Peter said to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may exult you may jump up you may rejoice with exaltation If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name.